entrepreneurship is really embarking on a journey. And like every journey, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end isn't when you build a great company. That's the middle. The end is when you leave that company. And everybody does. Sooner or later, you may go out feet first, but you're going to go one way or the other. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, oh, welcome to the pod. We are back. On last week's show, we announced we were publishing a book about the things we wish we'd considered before selling our business. And Ian, in the course of writing this book, I went onto Amazon and I spent a lot of our company money basically buying everything that was up there about the topic. I saw that. <laughs> yeah, I look at the receipts. It's amazing how few books, this is underbooked territory, Ian. Like, there's just not a lot of people writing stories about selling businesses. And the ones who do focus on the transaction element, which today's guest thinks is a relatively small portion of the overall transition phase of exiting your business. Honestly, from all the other books that I read, Ian, this was a really hard message for me to swallow. I mean, I thought selling a business is just about getting a price for it that you think is fair. Right. It turns out, you know, I think I sort of experienced it the hard way. And that's why I ended up writing the book is it was so much more than that. And had I read today's guest book, which is called Finish Big, and, and today's guest is Bo Burlingham, I might have gotten to borrow some wisdom <laughs> before having to sort of learn it on the fly. Yeah, it's funny. You know, we go through these experiences and then we're like, oh, I have to read all about how I felt and why I was feeling this way and <laughs> what happened. It's like, couldn't go out and proactively read Bo's book. Had to seek it out afterwards for a little bit of therapy. <laughs> it turns out, Ian, that so many entrepreneurs have regrets about the exit phase and they simply don't need to. So I thought it would be really fun to reach out to Bo who is author of several books and had a very long career at Inc. Magazine. He worked at Inc. Magazine for over 30 years. Bo turned out to be awesome. This was a great call. One of the ones you get off the phone and you're thinking about it afterwards, and I really got a lot out of this, so I hope you guys too. I started out by asking Bo the most pressing question. Given that having an exit has almost a mythical status in the entrepreneurial community, why aren't there more books about the experience? There are a lot of books out there, actually, about exiting businesses. They're all about how to make sure you don't leave money on the table, how to get the most money. There aren't a lot of books about what's the experience like, which I consider ironic because, you know, if you start a business and you fail, what do you do? You start over again. If you spend years and years and years building a business and then you screw it up at the end, for some people, that that's a real tragedy. I think it, a lot has to do with 
sort of the whole way that we think about what building a business is, which is, you know, one of the themes of my book. What do you mean by that? Writing this book sort of challenged a lot of ideas that I'd always had about not only about exits, but about entrepreneurship in general. I'd always thought that basically an exit was sort of an event that happened eventually to everybody one way or another. And what I realized in working on this book was that it's not an event. It's a phase of the business. You know, you have the startup phase, you have the growth phase, you have the sort of mature phase, you have the exit phase. Once you look at it that way, you sort of think about exits a little differently. In fact, one of the conclusions I came to was that there are actually four stages to this exit phase. The first stage is really sort of an exploratory phase in which, you know, you're basically just educating yourself about what the different options are likely to be. The second phase is what are the different options that you want. It's where you build into your company the kind of qualities that are going to allow you to have the kind of exit that you want. And then the third phase is what most people think of as the exit. And that really begins when you call up a lawyer or an accountant or investment banker or somebody comes to you and offers to buy your business and you start really sort of focusing on the actual sale. That phase ends with the deal. The books that are out there write about exits as if that's the whole idea is the deal, that you're just working up to the deal. But in fact, there's a fourth phase, which in many cases is the most difficult and also the most important, which is the transition from being an owner to something else. Most people don't prepare for it, and it can be very disorienting. There's one person I talked to, it took him 11 years, really, to go through the process of finding something beyond owning his business that he could really get involved in and get totally engaged in and feel good about. And, you know, the fact that that's a difficult transition is is not at all unusual. In fact, I think it happens to almost everyone. You know, we tend to think of the process of building a company as if it's some sort of construction process. But in fact, that's really the wrong way to look at it. Entrepreneurship is really embarking on a journey. And like every journey, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end isn't when you build a great company. That's the middle. The end is when you leave that company. And everybody does. Sooner or later, you may go out feet first, but you're going to go one way or the other. If you have not prepared for what happens when you're not there anymore, you're doing a disservice, really, to all those people. Your book starts out promisingly like other business books with a encouraging message that if you read this book, maybe you'll be able to finish big and end up on top. But the mood of this book is not like almost any other business book I can recall off the top of my head. At times, it's it's downright dark. So I can just yeah, quote true. a few times. Does he blame himself for what happened? Yeah, it's hard not to. It just gnaws at me all the time. In another paragraph, you said, 
he didn't say the word regret, but it hung in the air. <laughs> I mean, there's stories of, of suicide. There's stories of incredible financial pressures. Was that a conscious decision on your part? or It was a re- just a reflection, Dan, of the material I had. I'm a journalist, you know, I'm I'm not some sort of an exit guru or anything like that. In fact, I have to say, when I started out this project, I knew absolutely nothing about exits. I knew one thing. I mean, I worked for Inc. Magazine for like 35 years, and Inc. Magazine never wrote about exits at all. It was all about starting a business. It was all about growing a business. It was all about celebrating entrepreneurs who built big companies and things like that. One of the things that I did for Inc. when I was there was I did for really 20 years a column with a, an entrepreneur named Norm Brodsky. Norm is a guy who has had lots of experience in building companies, good and bad. He actually went through a Chapter 11 bankruptcy at one point, but he came out the other side and he built a company he was really proud of. And we used to write about those experiences and the lessons that he'd learned along the way. And then in, uh, I think it was 2006, he told me that he had just gotten back from an industry event and that he'd been approached there by a company that wanted to acquire his company. And the shocking part was he said, that he thought he was going to do it. I was really taken aback because he always loved doing what he did so much. So I said, well, I guess we ought to write about that in the next column. He said, sure, why not? And we wound up writing about doing a whole series called The Offer, which was about Norm dealing with this offer from, it's really a private equity company that owned another record storage business. That's his business. It turned out that this series became very popular in the magazine. People were sort of very curious to know what was happening. I mean, they'd stop Norm on the street and ask him where things were. He wasn't sure what it was going to be like not to be the CEO of this company that he'd had for, you know, 30 years. In the end, he wound up selling the company. That was the end of our series. The lesson I took out of this was that there was tremendous curiosity out there about what it was like to go through this kind of a process. So I went to my publisher and I told him that I thought there was a market for a book like this. And the publisher said, yeah, sure, let's do it. Why don't you do a book on, you know, sort of leaving a business? I said, okay, and I began to do my research. But basically, all I knew about exits was what I'd just been through with Norm. So one of the first things I realized was that I had to educate myself. And, you know, how was I going to do that? Well, I decided I needed to talk to other people who had sold their businesses and find out what the experience was like. And I was really sort of shocked to find that I started calling around and One of the things that really sort of took me aback was the very large number of people, you know, who were filled with regrets about having sold their businesses and and were really sort of depressed about it and wish they hadn't done it or wish they'd done it differently. 
I would say, in, in, at least in terms of the people I talked to, is about half and half. About half, it was a good experience, and they were happy afterwards. And then there were about half who were miserable afterwards. So I said, well, that's clearly my book. What's the difference between the ones who wind up happy and the ones who wind up miserable? Today, we've got a brand new sponsor. Their help keeping this pod in your earbuds. Huge thanks to the Bean Ninja. Do you have anxiety about the mess that your accounts are in? Do you know your numbers? It's that time of year again, the looming tax season. Most bookkeeping professionals think an Amazon product is rainforest lumber. If you identify with any of this, we got good news for you. The Bean Ninjas is a bookkeeping service designed to take those problems and anxieties away. And they specialize specifically in online businesses, so they know what you're up to. You absolutely must know your numbers if you're going to run a profitable business. Let the Bean Ninjas keep your books clean so you can stay focused on business growth. And today for TMBA listeners, the Bean Ninjas is offering a one-hour road mapping session to help clarify where your finances are and what your next steps should be. And they're offering it today for you for 100 bucks which is a small price to pay to know your numbers. That's a third of their usual price. Huge thanks to the Bean Ninjas. Check them out, BeanNinjas.com. And thanks to the Bean Ninjas for sponsoring the TMBA podcast. I had to start out by defining, you know, what do I mean by a good exit and what do I mean by bad exit? I decided that there were really sort of four or five essential qualities to a good exit. Number one, that you felt the process of selling your business had been fair and that you'd been rewarded appropriately. The second one, you know, had to do with the people who'd been on the journey with you and that you felt good about what had happened with them. The third one had to do with finding something afterwards, to become fully engaged in something afterwards. The fourth quality was that it wasn't true for everybody, but it was true for a lot of people, namely that the business was going on without you and was doing well. For some people, that was very important. It wasn't important for everybody, but it was important for a lot of people. And, you know, there's one other quality that is very important, which is, is that you were able to sort of look back on what you'd done and feel a sense of pride and knowing that you'd accomplished and you had created something of value and contributed something of value to the world. You know, basically, if you had those five qualities, you had a good exit. If you missed any one of them, it would totally ruin everything. You know, you start by asking yourself questions like, do I just want to make as much money as possible? I don't make any judgments. That's fine if that's if that's what you want. You know, a lot of the mistake people make is that they, when particularly when they're focused on that, that the, they'll wind up selling to a private equity company, and and then they're going to be really disappointed. A lot of them are going to be really disappointed. But, you mentioned that the private equity company was, will almost certainly change the culture of the company. Obviously, when they're being courted by private equity, private equity companies are selling themselves. They're saying, you know, we think you're so great. We think you have all these great ideas. We think what you've done here is really fantastic. 
and we just want you to keep doing what you're doing, which is probably not true. The thing people don't understand and that I try and tell entrepreneurs is you have to understand that if you take money from a private equity business, unless it's a very special one and you've researched it, you have to understand that you're not the customer. You're the raw material. The customer are the investors. Those are the people who they have to please. And if they can't please those investors, they can't raise more money. There's a parallel in the process, which is with business brokers, that you're not their client. Their clients are business buyers. Yeah. In the case of our LOI, for example, our broker insisted that they be exclusive, which is a situation that it's like when you talk to a wealth professional, whatever, or you're in a doctor's office and they say, do it. You're kind of like, well, (laughs) it's not what I would do, but I guess so. You're the boss, you know, and you do things that are against your intuition. Right. So why am I going to have no competition for this huge sale? I wouldn't do that at any other auction. Why am I doing it at this auction? When it comes to private equity, from the private equity firm's point of view, they have this money and there's the uh, investing period. And then there's the harvesting period. And they're going to make decisions. And they're going to put pressures on you based on what their needs are. There are many cases of the needs of the private equity company do not align with the needs of the companies in their portfolio. The fact that somebody, that one of these firms comes to you and tells you how wonderful it is and offers you a lot of money can lead you to make mistakes in terms of not doing what I write about in one chapter in the book, which I think is one of the seven things that I focus on, which is you've got to do your own due diligence on the buyer. If you don't, you're sort of setting yourself up for problems later on. You're talking about how to have a good exit. Your quote about this or your thoughts were essentially, everybody out there is thinking about the transactions. Right. The reality is, is that what people actually care about after this process happens is the emotions. Yes. And it's the transition rather than the transaction. So much of what's written about about exits is all focused on the transaction. But what's really hard is the emotional transition. There wasn't a word in this book that didn't resonate with me, and I'm completely on board with you. But I'm not sure that I would have been if I would have read it before this. Have you encountered this with your readers? Do your readers believe you when you say things like, not having a transition plan emotionally will completely sabotage this for you There's got to be a group of people that's like, no, I'm going to have X amount of money. I'm going to be just fine. Yeah. The point of this, you think that it's about winding up rich, but winding up rich is of no use if you're unhappy. And the real goal should be how do you wind up happy at the end of this? And having financial resources is certainly a big part of it, but it's only one part of it. Let me pick up with the last of the seven things that I focused on that turned out to be crucial to having a good exit. The last one had to do with being able to handle the transition. And the other ones sort of feed into that. There was one person I write about, took him 11 years to get through that. There are other people who've taken, you know, a few years or if you're a serial entrepreneur 
and you already know what business you're going to start next, then you have an easier time making that transition. When you think about why would it be that you would have this hard time? And I began to realize, you know, look, there are a lot of things that people get out of a business that they're not aware of until they don't have them anymore. You know, you don't miss your water till your well runs dry. A sense of purpose, you know, a sense of identity. I mean, a lot of people told me that the question they hated to get after they'd sold their business was they'd be at a party or something and somebody would ask them, well, what do you do? And they wouldn't know how to answer it. Or basically they'd say, well, I used to have a business, but the really hard part was people were really asking, who are you and what do you do? And so you lose that sense of purpose. You lose that sense of identity about who you are. You lose your tribe as well. In other words, people who you've worked with over and over again, they're not around anymore and you miss them. The other thing that comes out of a business is that you have a sense of accomplishment sort of built into the business process, which is that you can see how you're going. And structure, business sort of tells you what you need to do next. When you don't have that, I write about one person who basically afterwards, he set up an office in his in his house and, and sort <laughs> I of love play, this story. <laughs> and, and playing business. I mean, he got business cards, he got a phone, <laughs> and he sort of pretended that he actually had something to do and he didn't have anything to do. And so when I looked at the people who had gotten beyond that, and the thing that I saw was that most of them were in fact spending a lot of their time had sort of were invested in helping other entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs who had not yet been through the process. And I began thinking about, you know, what happens in business? Business is all about service. I mean, at the very least, you're serving your customers. If you're not serving your customers, you're not going to be in business very long. Most people, they're also serving their families. And for a lot of people, they're serving their employees. So there's all this sort of service that becomes a big part of your identity and your purpose. It's difficult to recognize from time to time because part of the fantasy that a lot of entrepreneurs have when they sell is sort of to throw all that out. I don't want to have to deal with staff headaches anymore. I will say this is that one of the things that I did find with people who'd sold their businesses was the one thing they didn't want to do is they didn't want to have employees again. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right about that. But not having employees is not the same as not serving people. I mean, this guy it took him 11 years to go through it. He was pretty much depressed that whole time. I mean, they had money, but he was still depressed because he didn't know what he was doing and he didn't know what he should do. And he had a family and you know that affected his wife. It affected his children. They were worried about him. In fact, it was one of his daughters who eventually sort of helped him figure out a way out by telling him he was such a good teacher Maybe he should go back and, you know, get a degree and become a teacher. He enrolled in a school he studied, and eventually he had to do a dissertation. And he did his dissertation on the experience of owners of private businesses when they leave their companies. 
he went around as he interviewed people, it was very therapeutic for him because he realized that he wasn't alone, that there were a yeah. lot of other people who went through a lot of the same things that he did. I'm on my therapy tour right now, Bo. I don't know if you recognized. <laughs> I was sharing my story with a guy next to me on a bicycle a few weeks ago, and it turns out that we were in the same situation. You know, Both moved to Spain, both sitting on our bicycles for a ridiculous amount of time. Was he American? He was American, yeah. and I kept talking, 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 and I just thought we were exactly the same. Like I didn't get the right amount of money. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't do this, and here I am now. And so I finally kind of got some bravery up. As you would say, I screwed up some bravery. I said, well, how much did you sell it for? And the number, again, all of our problems are exactly the same, except yeah. he made like 35 times as much money as I did. <laughs> <laughs> and it's almost an awkward conversation to have because it's, these, are really, these aren't real life problems. You, know? you don't want to say that this is an important problem for everybody to care about. It's an important problem for a particular group of people, namely business owners. I would say especially entrepreneurs. It's very rare that people go through that process without getting emotionally involved with their businesses. And that has consequences. Look, it's pretty rare that people go through the process of growing a business without getting emotionally involved, particularly if it's your primary project and source of income over the course of many years. This is an important point that Bo makes in his book, but it's not really something that the entrepreneurial community as a whole gives a ton of attention to. Anyway, the fact that we don't do this has consequences down the line, and it raises its head in an exit when you come into contact with someone who very definitely has zero emotional involvement in your business or is emotionally involved in a very different way. And that's the broker who you employ to sell it and the professional staff that you surround yourself with. This is something about in retrospect that Ian and I were a little naive about when we made our sale. For them, the deal is the end of it. Then they move on to another client and try and do another deal. But for the owner, it's not the end of it. In fact, it's the beginning of what in some ways is the hardest part. That's why I think it's important for people to be advised by somebody who's been through it themselves because they're going to understand all these issues. And I'm also a very big proponent of peer groups. I mean, I write about one peer group in the book, Evolve. USA, which is in Chicago. These are a group of people who have been through something and have helped them through something that there aren't a lot of people out there. You know, it's like you and your friend on the bicycle. There aren't a lot of people out there who you can talk to about these things, who understand what it is you're going through. I mean, most people, you walk away with several million dollars and most people, you know, have the response that you said, you know, I'd like to have that problem. Basically, when you look back and you look at the different phases that I, that I laid out earlier, there's no point that's too early to start thinking about them. One of the questions you can ask yourself is, you know, am I building a company that I want to have last after me? Am I building a company that I want to remain independent? How do I feel about, you know, my employees and the people who are going to go with me in the effort to build this company. People who start thinking early about that 
not that you come to a definitive answer, but you're aware of the issues and you're aware that there are certain decisions you're going to make which are going to affect what your options are going to be at the end. If you look at Stephen Covey and stuff he's written about, you know, he talks about how important it is to begin with the end in mind. Even he, which is something I agree with, but even he doesn't really understand how that applies to a business because when he writes about it in his book, he talks about how important it is to begin with the end in mind as if the end is the kind of company you want to build. That's important, but that's not the end. Well, even the more popular books about building sellable businesses, they don't address building a career that you're ultimately is going to meet your goals and make you proud and all that. Right. And this is the biggest contributing goal. If you're going to sell a business, this is like all of your other accomplishments are going to be quite small relative. So if you don't get it right, you're going to have a tough time with it. How many years did you have your business for? Eight. Okay. So you're going to spend eight prime years of your life building this business. And, you know, where do you wind up? Does it turn out, in fact, the way that you're happy with, the way that you want it to turn out? One of the things that me and the bike guy were talking about is thought experiments that you can do before you sell to help you kind of envision what your life might be like after. And one of the thought experiments I jokingly came up with was called the mediocre CEO test, which is like, <laughs> what would happen if you like brought on a mediocre CEO and did your best to train that person up to run your company? And like, they ran it, but not so great. And, and then I stumbled on your book. You have some anecdotes where this actually happened. And it, in some ways, it wasn't so funny. It was some really bad things happened. And I don't think there's a business owner on earth who hasn't fantasized at some point about bringing on somebody that could be a successor or somebody to, to do the heavy lifting on a day-to-day basis. How does that work out for people in small businesses? Well, it, it can work out well if you've got the right person. I do have a chapter on succession in there, and I will say this, that if all the people who I interviewed, and you know, I wound up doing somewhere over 100 interviews, there was one company and one person who got it right the first time. And that was the company called Cadence. It was originally called Specialty Blades, but it changed its name to Cadence. And the fact that they got it right, there were very special circumstances with it. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me while I was reading the Cadence story is it wouldn't be a bad idea to start thinking about that like right away. It's like built to sell, but also like who's going to be the CEO of this company? I ought to be training somebody. Right. Well, certainly if you want to have that option, again, there is a lot that I've learned. <laughs> this book is bigger than a PhD on the topic. I think there's a lot of subtlety to it that a lot of business books don't capture because they're always trying to break everything down. But in your concepts, there's a lot of bleed over where most books you get out of and you're like, oh, I'm pumped up. I'm going to start with step number one. Your book you get out of and you're kind of like, you get intimidated by what you're going to have to do, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there are a lot of people who have told me they wish they'd read the book earlier. You know, you raised the question of, well, would they really have read it earlier? I mean, I'll tell you something interesting. Obviously, my target audience was people who own businesses and people who are running businesses, but they're not the ones who buy the book. People who buy the book 
by and large, are people who advise, might be wealth managers for somebody. Wealth managers realize that their future is basically tied up a lot in entrepreneurs who are going to sell their businesses and have a lot of money that they're going to need to manage. Or people who are in the profession of advising business owners about how to handle this transaction or this transition. They read Finish Big and they wind up buying multiple copies and giving it away <laughs> because it's basically a way that they feel they can use to get business owners to take seriously something they really don't want to think about. To a certain extent, thinking about your exit is like, you know, thinking about your funeral. And <laughs> a lot of people are very resistant to that. It's like, I'll deal with that when the time comes. At this point, I want to jump in to uh, give a little context for this book we're publishing, Ian. Because, you know, hype train, man. We got to do it. TropicalMBA.com slash book. It's coming out soon. And we talk about it a little bit in this talk. And Ian, in some ways, Bo's book is wise and dense. And the book that we created is a little bit more like a sugar coating around that medicine that's in Bo's book, which is it's fun. Like you don't need to be selling a business in order to get value out of the book. It's like these thought experiments about your life that would be fun and easy to do whenever. The reality of like doing the things that are necessary that you need to do in order to be successful in exiting your business, those things aren't always fun and easy. Yeah. Our book's like a gateway drug, you know, like, come on in, think about this stuff. It'll be fun. And it is. And this grew out of talks that me and you gave. So I basically appropriated one of the talks that you gave at an event. And then I sort of smushed it together with a bunch of these thought experiments that I had been sort of talking about with entrepreneurs, just like in friendly environments, like, Hey, have you ever done this? And I'll just list the names for you because I've named them. They're called the lifestyle ladder. You might've even named that one. At this point, you just take credit for everything. <laughs> I haven't been paid for it yet though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for my author check to come through. <laughs> Number two, the mock tax rebate featuring the mediocre CEO test. The number three thought experiment in the book is called The Hidden Upsides. The number four is called The Cash Conundrum. And number five is called The Dirty Secret. And so I reference some of these as Bo and I continue to talk about sort of like they're basically fun party tricks and games. And so let's get back to our conversation with Bo. The guy on the bicycle said to me, we have this one test that's like, He's like, you know, I wish I would have just like walked away from my business for a month, like on a vacation, because <laughs> yeah. I'm walking away for the rest of my life. I should have tested it out for a month. You know? <laughs> I'm familiar with that. There's somebody in the book who basically had the same feeling, Bruce Leach. One of the points that I make, I believe this is the most important thing in business period, building the business, whether you're building the business, building a company or leaving a company. And that is knowing who you are, what you want and why. That's not something that, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to spend this weekend figuring out who I am, what I want <laughs> and why. That's something you spend your whole life doing. And a lot of times it's difficult when bad things happen. That's when you really sort of figure out things about yourself. But 
the point is, is that if you don't know who you are, what you want and why, you wind up doing what other people tell you to do. The only way you can make decisions that are going to be good for you are knowing who you are, what you want and why. That's really something that a lot of people don't spend much time thinking about while they're building a company. And if they don't know, if they don't spend time thinking about it, they run smack into it as soon as they leave their company. Well, I was thinking about that as there's this part in the book where you're talking about the company can do all these things for you in sneaky ways that you don't understand. So when you say you have to know who you are, it sounds like, you know, read some Aristotle or whatever. I don't know how to do that. Well, it's because the business had been doing it for you for so long. And so for so many of us, we start businesses to make that definition for ourselves. Like I am somebody, I'm going to be somebody. So I'm going to start a business. And it's like this pathology that drives you. Maybe you need validation. Maybe you need wealth. Maybe you want power. There's so many reasons that people do this that are so personal, but you forget about it during those many years where you're completely engaged in the project. Not, the business never really made all those fundamental questions or desires go away. They just addressed them for so long. Yeah. There's never a shortage of things to do when you're running a business. In fact, there's so many things to do that it's sort of easy to avoid thinking about some of these questions. But, you know, you face choices in business. One of the choices you have is, am I building a company that I want to get as big as possible, as fast as possible? Or am I building a company that has other qualities that are really more important to me than that? That's what my book, Small Giants, is about. Small Giants is about choosing to be great rather than big. Part of the reason it's important in that context to know who you are is because a lot of people will tell you what you should do. I mean, you may make decisions. I mean, I've got lots of examples there about entrepreneurs who've made decisions and literally everybody, all their advisors were telling them they were crazy. But again, if they knew who they are, what they want and why, then they can go ahead and do it anyway. A case that I write about Gary Erickson of Cliff Bar. Cliff Bar was a company that he founded really because he had an experience of trying to eat energy bars that had just come out. All he was looking for was a sort of a share of the power bar market. But in fact, it became his Cliff Bars became very, very popular. And uh, the company grew and grew and grew. Carrie was approached by Quaker, which offered him $120 million for Cliff Bar. And then literally the day of the sale, you know, the honchos had flown in from Quaker to do the deal. He had a partner who he was waiting in his office, getting ready to go over and sign the papers. And suddenly he began to feel terrible about what was going on. He told his partner, he said, look, I've got to go outside. I've got to get some fresh air. And so he started to walk around the block and, and he was so upset about what he was about to do that he began to actually cry. And then a thought popped into his head and he said, well, wait a minute, I haven't signed anything yet. And suddenly he felt a lot better and he walked back to the office and told his partner, you can send them all home. I'm not going to go through with this deal. There was a problem because the partner was a 50-50 owner and she wanted the $60 million 
that she was going to get out of this. And he had to wind up figuring out a way to pay her. And everybody is telling him outside the company is telling him, you are absolutely nuts. Now you not only have these billion dollar competitors, but you're taking on 60, 70 million dollars in debt. He basically said, I think I can make a go of it and I'm going to go ahead and do this. And, you know, make a long story short, the next three years, company tripled in size. He paid off his debt. You know, now it's about 10 times what it was when I first wrote about them. But, you know, that's the sort of a decision when everybody's telling you this is crazy. You know, you can't avoid the thought, well, gee, maybe it is crazy. What's the story that sticks with you from the interviews that you did? For me, it was, I mean, not necessarily for a lesson, but because I related to this moment of Jack Altshuler. He's telling you the story of like this kind of pang regret that he had from a decade before. Yeah, that's certainly one of the stories that I remember very well, because it was a, a moment where he was obviously still 12 years later, still very upset. He'd never really gotten over the fact that he had this employee who he'd been very close to, who basically said, you betrayed me. Because he had been working on the sale of the business for a year without telling her, essentially. Yeah, because basically his lawyer and his accountant had told him, whatever you do, don't let anybody know about this, which is the sort of advice that a lawyer or an accountant would give because (laughs) the last thing they need is somebody interfering with them or, you know, complicating things. Can I ask you some questions about writing? Sure. What sort of advice would you give to the younger Bo that is just getting started with a writing career, struggling to put words on the paper? What are some the biggest lessons that you've learned about writing for a living? Well, number one, I have a confession to make, which is that I hate writing. (laughs) There are parts of the process that I love. I love the research part of the process. I love talking to people and hearing their stories and that sort of thing. I like, after I'm all done, talking to people about it and sort of moving on and having it come out and having this experience with readers. It's the part in between that I find absolute torture. (laughs) What I would have told the younger writer is, you know, don't worry, this is normal. If you really don't like it, find something else to do. And in fact, I tried to find something else to do. I became an editor for a while. And what I found was that my identity was as a writer and that I needed to go back to it. When you take the research, these hundred interviews, and you head out on a draft, do you have an outline of how you're going to approach the book? And how different does that look to what the final product ends up being? Once you have all these interviews there are a lot of challenges because you've got all this material. And the question is, how are you going to find it when you need it? And what system are you going to have? You know, I had to sort of invent that for myself, but the kind of writing I do, it's a part of the process. It's extremely important, but most people, you know, don't even think about it. And it takes a lot of time. I do Early on, 
try to come up with an outline. For me, the simpler the chapter outline, the better. I basically want it to be transparent to my readers what I'm doing. Like with Fish Big, for example, I realized that I needed an opening chapter that sort of laid out what it was that I was going to be writing about. And I had to do three versions of that because I was sort of figuring it out as I went along. And then I said, well, okay, I've got these seven or eight things that go into having a good exit. I should probably devote a chapter to each of them. And that gives me a framework, really, for telling the stories of the people. And then I have to decide, okay, well, what are the appropriate stories to go in each of these chapters? The other thing is that an editor is very, very important to me, particularly when I'm writing a book, but actually when I'm writing articles as well, because what happens is you lose perspective. You get so close to whatever it is that you're writing that you don't know if it's any good anymore. Your book feels very true. You know, it feels like it's an honest account of what happened in these people's lives. Author doesn't feel like he has an agenda. It feels like you can resonate with it. I guess for the longest time in the business world, I've wondered why there isn't more journalism about it. It feels like what's happening, like the people that I meet aren't necessarily the people that show up in blog posts and in books and on television and things. It seems like there's a big separation there. Well, I would say that I got lucky in that I never intended to go into business journalism. Frankly, I was pretty extreme on the left when I was a kid and growing up. And the last thing I wanted to do was to write about, I thought business was... Business people are douchebags, right? I thought business was sort of the root of all evil. I was... Uh, yeah, I can relate and, to that. You know, then I got to a certain point where I, I was sort of a general interest magazine writer at that point. I've been doing that for a while, but I was freelance and, you know, freelance is you know, feast or famine, mainly famine. I got to a point, you know, where I had, my wife and I had two young kids and I realized that I needed to get a real job. Right about that time, a headhunter came along who was looking for somebody to go write for Fidelity Investments. And I said, well, they don't want me. I mean, I don't know the difference between a stock and a bond. And she said, that doesn't matter. They can teach you all that. Then, as it happened, after a year, I got called by a friend who was working at this new magazine in Boston, where I lived, called Inc. Magazine. It was a startup. They were looking for people who had a background in sort of general interest magazine writing, but who knew something about business. And by virtue of my having been at Fidelity for a year, I knew something about business, not very much, but I did know a little bit. So I went and interviewed for that. They offered me a job and I took it. This was in January of 1983. I wound up in the world of entrepreneurship at a really exciting time. People like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and so forth, who were sort of emerging as a whole new, these were business people like totally shattered the images that business people had. I was lucky because I was in a situation to get to know a lot of 
entrepreneurs who were starting companies that became household names at a point when their companies were very small and they themselves were very young. All the focus back then was on Japan and the Japanese competition. And we could see that, in fact, the really big competition in the future was not from Japan. It was from these young companies that were absolutely changing the world. And we were there sort of chronicling what was going on. And that was very exciting. Then I co-authored a book with one of the people who I admired the most, a fellow named Jack Stack. We wrote a book called The Great Game of Business. The book, The Great Game of Business, was part of a business revolution in the 20th century. It helped to introduce this concept of open book management, which at the time was a new way of running a business that empowered employees to grow companies by being introduced to the numbers, essentially, that were at the core of the business and that they were responsible for. Was that book your big career break, or how do you look back on that now? I look back on it as one of the most important books that I wrote. I have this theory about books, which is that a book is going to be a big book if you tell people something they already know, but a lot of people are telling them that they're stupid. And in fact, you know, there were a lot of people who thought, yeah, I'd sort of like my employees to understand how this business works, but you know, their accountants and their lawyers and everybody was saying, oh, that's a really bad idea. In business, historically, there was always this sort of tension between the soft side and the hard side, between the people side and the financial side. And they were always sort of seemed to be at war. And what Jack figured out was there's a way you can eliminate that. And how do you eliminate it? You eliminate it by putting the finances in the hands of the people. The people understand the finances and are sort of involved in sort of creating value and have a role to play in terms of the big decisions that you don't have that conflict between the finances and the people anymore. Have you noticed over the years, are there companies that that doesn't work for? Or would you be willing to say pretty much most companies would benefit if you had the stones to implement this properly? I think it's the most powerful tool that I've seen in business. It's not easy to do. It takes a lot of training. There are a lot of challenges. If it's something you want to do and you're willing to put in the time and effort to make it happen and make it happen the right way, it's an incredibly powerful tool. I mean, just think about it. In most companies, you have you know five or six or 10 or 20 people at the top who sort of know what's going on and are telling everybody else what to do. If you have one of those and in the same business, you've got another company where you've got 100 people who know what everybody knows what's going on and knows what they need to do in order to be successful. Who's going to be more successful? One of the best moments in Finish Big was when the factory worker raised his hand and said, of his employee stock share, which was he was counting on for retirement, he said to the owner, well, if all your cash is in our inventory, how am I going to eat that, basically? (laughs) Right. That actually was Jack Stack's company, that example. For him, that was a critical thing because 
the company is, is owned by its employees. It's 100% ESOP now. It wasn't back then. In yep. other words, everybody in the company is a member of the employee stock ownership plan, but this is a company that has only one shareholder, namely the ESOP is the shareholder, and ESOPs aren't taxed. So if you have a like an S-corp and the owner of the company is this ESOP, everything that flows through doesn't get taxed. I mean, eventually the government gets its share. When people leave, they have to be cashed out and then they have to pay taxes on what they get. In that case, it was a factory worker who alerted the owner of the company. He was the CEO of the company. Okay. Basically, he believed in employee ownership and he had brought in all these people as owners and you know he saw it as well gee this is going to be great we're going to have everybody working together and the guy said well basically he said to him where are you going to get the cash to pay me when we're done <laughs> and he thought about it and he said you know that's a really really good question <laughs> i don't know but i better figure it out and he really spent you know the next 20 years figuring it out so my, my last question is the hardest one. A lot of sort of ambitious, bright-eyed, really smart people listening to the show. They're probably running their first business, maybe second. What's one thing that you'd hope people would take away from the stories that you've been telling that they could implement in their lives and business? The biggest thing that I would hope they would take away would be an understanding that this is something that lies in their future and that they can't avoid. Everybody exits their business. You know, as I said before, you can exit feet first, but you're going to exit. Your journey isn't over until you've moved on to something else, and you're really engaged in that, and you're excited about it, and you really want to do something with it. And the earlier that you realize that, and you realize that you need to start thinking about this and you need to start educating yourself about this, the better off you're going to be. There are constant issues that are coming up that you have to deal with, but you can't put this off. You can't put off thinking about this as long as most people do and still have a good chance of having a happy exit because the last thing you want to do is spend your whole life building a company and then figuring out your exit and then have somebody come along and offer you money and you wind up selling the company and you wind up being miserable afterwards. There are ways to avoid that happening to you, but you know, you really have to start early to think about them. Oh, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate um, it. Happy. Really great to talk to you, Dan. If you want to take a look at the show notes, a link to Bo's book, and everything mentioned in this episode, head on over to tropicalmba.com slash finish big. And if you're interested in being the first to know when our book goes live in just a few weeks now, head over to tropicalmba.com slash book. Here's a parting reflection I want to share with you, Ian, and let's see what you think about it. So at the end of the book that we wrote, which we described sort of as like a sugar pill, it's like 
it's fun and it's simple. It's you're going to get something out of it. You know, it's not going to take you too much time. Ideally speaking, at the end of the book, the reader would be introduced to a problem set that they may or may not have known that they have. There is a part there that's like, well, what's the next step? You know, and I go into some detail about what they might be able to do next. But one of the things is to pick up Bo's book. Honestly, had I read this book three years ago, I don't know if I would have bought it. You know what I mean? Yeah. We've talked about this a bunch, which is with any kind of information or advice, you you really have to be at the right point in your life, the right point in your business for it to make sense or resonate, unless you're a much smarter person than I am. And then you can (laughs) kind of internalize this and like use it for later. But for us, I think it's like sometimes this information has to be like timely and it has to arrive at the right time. I think you're right. If I if I read that book three or four years ago, I would have said, mm, that's not really for me or that's not really where I'm at. Some of the things that you're going to have to encounter are intimidating and it's not all going to be simple. And I think that that's so much of the virtue of what Bo did was he did paint a complex picture. Now, of course, he breaks it down and offers some suggestions about ways forward and everything. But I really encourage people that, I mean, you know, our book is more of a general audience, people who are thinking about the future. Bo's book is like this emergency kit. Like if you're going into a process where you're going to enter into the exit phase, it's a must read. It's an absolute must read. And I'm very happy to say that. It was wonderful to talk to Bo too. It was really cool. So big props. Could have uh, avoided all this, Ian, had we just... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. All right, boss man. I'll see you next Thursday morning. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.